This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. Nothing is more seductive. Yes! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Welcome to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. I'm Anahita. I'm Adam. And I'm Madeline. And we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, we have a very uh, cool show for you today, hopefully. I think it'll be a cool one. I'm super <laughs> excited about this. Hopefully. Yep. We're not we're not physicists, and we have a physicist in the room, so... Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> it, will, it, will be, it will be good. It will be a good show. Uh, just a reminder that if you're listening to us on our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps a lot. Yes, please do. Mm-hmm. And you can reach us if um, you have a question or anything on our Facebook. On our Facebook, or also you can email us at thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. So. And you can call us, too, at the studio, right? If you want to, yeah. <laughs> 573-882-8262. Um, yeah, so with that, uh, Anahita, why don't you introduce us to our guest? Well, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Dr. Mira Chandrasekhar. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Great. Um, who is a professor in the physics department here at the University of Missouri. But what she has done that's really awesome is a um, you've made an app. So uh, do you want to start by kind of telling us about yourself, how you got into science? Oh, okay. Um, I've been at MU for um, a great many years, mm-hmm. and uh, I got interested in science uh, just like many scientists as a child. Uh, and, you know, you sort of run around when you're a young kid wondering why it is that the moon doesn't just fall down and stuff <laughs> like that. And at some point along the way when I started taking physics classes, it was kind of very exhilarating to figure out why it is actually so. Why is why it is that uh, uh, you know an object falls down on Earth, but the moon doesn't fall down into the Earth? So, uh, and there were many such uh, kind of funny questions that kids have. Uh, I'm sure and, uh, had them too. Many misconceptions and along the way. It was uh, interesting to get them answered. I also had a very, uh, an excellent teacher in my first year of college, and I think that's what got me started on the path to uh, uh, doing a phys- going into a physics career. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that those are definitely questions I've had as a little kid, but that's still really awesome that it took you into becoming a professor in physics. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a long path, I guess, and as uh, luckily as some of the questions get answered, other questions come up, so it keeps your interest going. Oh, yeah. I definitely feel that way with chemistry. So, um, what specifically is your research in physics? Uh, I'm a condensed matter physic- physicist, and I'm an experimentalist. So, I uh, work with the optics, and I work with the materials that are solids. Uh, my specialty is to... Uh, study the solids uh, under high pressures. So we have uh, what's called a diamond anvil high pressure cell, and it produces pressures that are uh, about a million PSI. And that does things to materials. It uh, it pushes the uh, molecules closer together and changes their electronic and vibrational properties. And those are the things I study uh, using light as a technique for interrogating the energy levels. Okay, so I need to know how many lasers do you have in your lab? Uh, maybe three or four. <laughs> Not <laughs> she, a whole lot. Anahita works with I lasers. I work with lasers also. Okay. And so I, I'm always interested to know how many more are on campus. But that is an insanely high pressure. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, it's not as insanely high as people have, uh, you know, taken diamond hand, anvil pressure cells to. Uh, they've reached pressures that are a good deal more, uh, things that are sort of uh, pressures as high as inside uh, Jupiter. Well, uh, whereas these pressures are pressures that are uh, not quite the interior of the Earth, but uh, several tens of kilometers down. So is this kind of... Um studying it because we don't understand it or is there one of those kind of real world applications even if it's like several 
um, iterations down where we could be using this to understand the earth or something like that? Well, actually, it's, um, it's if you like, it's one more parameter that you can change. Mm -hmm. So very often when one is trying to understand new materials, let's say, for example, you know, gallium arsenide, aluminum arsenide, uh, heterostructures have been around for, what, 25, 30 years now. Uh, but there was a time when they were first uh, made when, for example, it was really not clear how the energy levels lined up. And it was very hard to figure, that, figure out that uh, question uh, using standard techniques. And it turned out that pressure turned out to be a really clean technique for uh, studying what happened at room pressures because you weren't changing the chemistry, mm -hmm. uh, but you, all you were doing was changing the spacing between the molecules. Mm -hmm. And that uh, uh, turned out to be a good way to answer that question. That's really cool. Yeah. You built an app. Um, mm -hmm. And you started this process mm, how long ago? Okay, so, you know, in addition to being a regular, regular old physics professor <laughs> tinkering around my lab. I'm sure um, you just had plenty of free time. <laughs> yeah, just right. Were looking for was, I was just getting bored. bored. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so about 25 years ago, I really got very interested in... Uh, uh, the education of uh, the K-12 population. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that probably came from uh, my kids. My children were much younger at that time. Uh, but it was also something that I was, you know, I had always been interested in, but I found a new opening, if you like, to um, work with students and to work with their teachers. And so I had a very long and uh, useful collaboration with uh, some of the uh, uh, administrators and science coordinators of the Columbia Public Schools. Uh, so over the years, uh, we did various different kinds of programs. And about 10 years ago, uh, there was a push by several of the uh, uh, state uh, administrators in Missouri uh, to start teaching students physics in ninth grade. Now, as you probably know, ninth grade is not a traditional place where students take a physics class. No, I was in, I was senior year, yes, right. I think, of high school. That's right. was like right. 28. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so just to give you some statistics, uh, which are kind of disheartening, 60% uh, of, only 60% of high schools in the U.S. offer any kind of physics course. Really? Wow. When, when I said I was 28, I was not entirely joking. I did not have a physics class yeah. in high school. It at was all. not your fault. In fact, I was in college the first <laughs> time I was exposed to that. Oh. That's right. And then, uh, so the result of that, in a sense, is that only 40% of graduating high school students take any kind of physics class. So basically, when these students come to college, uh, you know how the physics classes go in college, right? Mm -hmm. They just very high paced and oh, yeah. mm -hmm. they are very demanding. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, a lot of students who say think that they might want to do physics uh, or engineering or you know biolog biological sciences and so on, a great many of them stumble in the physics class because they've never had a physics class at all and the concepts of physics might have been learned maybe in sixth grade or something like that, mm -hmm. which is really a long time ago for them. <laughs> so, um, so the uh, idea here among these uh, school administrators was that by having a... a a physics class in ninth grade, mm -hmm. uh, they could now make every student in the school take physics. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the class has to be very different if it's for a ninth grader. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it can't be that mathematical. It has to be much more conceptual. Uh, it also has to be hands-on. Uh, since it's going to be the first science course that they take in their high school uh, studies, it should probably be something that teaches them the methodologies of science, how to design an experiment, you know, how do you set up a fair test, and all of those kinds of uh, things that you want students to learn. How do you think through stuff? How do you discuss science? So all of those ideas have to also be incorporated into this first science class. So that was then sort of the way we wanted to go about constructing this physics class. And so we uh, started a professional development program for, uh, for ninth grade science teachers. Uh, in total, that uh, program ran through two cycles of funding. Uh, about 123 teachers took, took part in that program in about 53 Missouri school districts. 
And um, that's great. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about outreach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I was just gonna ask if it was all over Missouri or just Columbia. No, it was all over Missouri. Nice. Now Missouri has about 500 school districts, mm-hmm. and so this is about 10 percent of them. Some okay. were large, some were small. You know, so we had a real mix. Was it was it all over Missouri, or was it mostly like big cities? No, it was uh, it was from all over Missouri. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, basically, we our idea was whoever wants to come, they they can come. Mm-hmm. The uh, requirement was that if they came to the class, we wanted them to institute ninth grade physics as a year long course mm-hmm. in their school district. Mm-hmm. So that was our requirement, and it was uh, well funded. So you know, they got a stipend and materials and mm-hmm. all kinds of goodies. You so know. That this was about like eight years ago or something. Right. Like so the first cycle started in two thousand six. Okay. And then we got funded again by NSF in 2009. And so that mm-hmm. was sort of the second cycle. So okay. total was uh, about 123 teachers. So what it has done to the enrollment of students uh, in Missouri is, mm-hmm. is kind of astounding. So uh, in 2006, um, maybe about three or 400 students took ninth grade physics in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Right now, that number is 13,000 annually, 17,000 annually. That is wow. awesome. Yeah. That is great improvement. Right. And about 13,000 of those uh, students are from districts that came to our project. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So it's really changed the landscape, if you like. Uh, now, by the way, just as a baseline, uh, about 12,000 students take, t- you know, the other kind, any other flavor of high school physics. Mm-hmm. So it's more than double the number of students who are taking mm-hmm. physics yeah. in Missouri. So we hope that, you know, this will have an impact uh, as students come to MU or go to college and so on. It's a different kind of a course, but it still teaches them a lot of the concepts. And it seems like it um, talks about topics that we discuss a lot when we talk about science literacy in general. Yes. This experimental design, reading science, understanding how science is executed. And And scientific discourse. Yeah. 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 And physics is a pretty great um, course to be teaching those things in. Like, it's really hard to think about a control experiment when you're talking about biology or Mm -hmm. wildlife or something that is really, yeah, really not within your control totally. But physics is pretty linear. Yeah. And things are not going to die on you. (laughs) (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) I know that all too well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine a high school experiment with fruit flies or something like that. That would be be messy. Yeah, yeah. You can just put it in a box and put it away and take it out (laughs) next year and hopefully it'll still be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always good. Also, that that students don't die also. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good goal to have. A big explosion or something. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's a good goal for for a a TA like myself. (laughs) Um, Adam, we're TAs, okay? I'm just saying. Um, (laughs) So the app was sort of a, uh, was a byproduct of this project. So uh, we found early on that we needed to uh, write a curriculum that was somewhat more detailed than existed for that grade level. Uh, You know, across the country, uh, there's not that many students that take ninth grade physics. It's about 84,000 students out of about one and a half million Mm -hmm. who take ninth grade physics. So there's not that much development that's been put into um, developing a curriculum. It's certainly not in the kind of interactive way that mm-hmm. we all wanted the curriculum to be. And so that curriculum uh, was something that we worked on for many years in a paper pencil version for about seven or eight years. Uh, and by we, I mean uh, my co-author, Dorina Costin. And then there's a whole raft of other folks who helped work on this project. And mm-hmm. So the whole budget teachers, for example. So that's the curriculum then that at some point we knew we wanted to publish it. And it sort of makes sense to publish it as an, a digital product. Mm-hmm. And so we converted it into an app. Well, I feel like doing this conversion to an app kind of helps you helps you when you can't control the education of the teachers you're working with also. So sometimes, especially with smaller school districts, mm-hmm. you really don't know if you're getting the greatest sampling of teachers. And if nobody has experience in physics... How can you reliably expect them to educate the next generation on physics? Yeah. So, yeah, this is a really important issue because, you know, if you look at how many uh, teachers get certified to teach physics, it's Mm -hmm. actually, I think, across Missouri, it's like 
10 a year. Oh, so wow. you, that's you, very without low. saying much, it's With obviously... 500 school districts, that's not cutting yeah, it. <laughs> it's just not cutting it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a great need out there. And you're right, because the app allows you to embed uh, instructions for teachers mm-hmm. and so on. And it can all be done so that it doesn't kind of jump out at you and make the book fatter. Uh-huh. You know, which is a real problem with textbooks, as you know. So, so uh, how do you imagine the app being used in relation to the classroom? Um, so the the way the app is constructed is it's really constructed so that it is an in class. It should be used in class by the teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's not really meant for the student to lo- use on their own. Mm. Uh, a lot of the uh, so uh, uh, the methodology that we use, to use is based on inquiry and modeling, and those are fairly standard methodologies, uh, where uh, if you want a student to learn a topic, you give the student some materials and they play around with it, and then you ask them very specific questions to tease out what they learned. And then the students are supported, supposed to discuss stuff among themselves and then report back to the teacher, and then the whole class discusses it. So there's a lot of interactivity and discussion that goes on in the class, which we feel is really important to student learning. And so that's kind of built into how the app is structured. Wait, how? have we actually said the name of the app? Oh, oh we haven't. No, we haven't, which <laughs> I was just going to say, we should probably say it. Yeah, I guess that would be a good idea. It's called Exploring Physics. And yeah. it's available on iPads? Yes, it's available OS on X and iPad, a Mac, and PC. Yes. Very cool. Great. Um, for, so this app, you, you mentioned it's targeted towards uh, students to have discussions and... and um, oh. <laughs> and, and, and inquiry learning. Um, is this developed for to last throughout the, the academic year or is it just for like certain parts of, of the year? Yeah, the, right, right. The content that uh, we are hoping to finish by the end of this year, mm-hmm. by the end of 2016, will take a class through an entire academic year. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's only two of you working on it? Yeah. <laughs> Two of us doing the main writing. Now, we are not doing the programming. Okay. Okay. So, so that's being, so the, it's just the content writing and the planning and all that stuff mm-hmm. is done by the two of us, Dorina Costin and myself. Uh, the programming is done by an outside uh, uh, developer. Mm-hmm. And then we've got other people whom we lean on for editing and, mm-hmm. you know, checking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. How is it, the, how was the process of, of you um, going from physics, PhD, research base, going into the switching to the academic aspect of, of K-12 through 12 education and planning curriculum, um, things of that nature? It happened slowly okay. <laughs> and over many years. Yeah. Yeah. It, sta- it started with just, you know, small projects and stuff. And it, it was really so much fun. And I, I felt like it was really contributing to student learning mm-hmm. and to teacher learning and so on that I just didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. So it's had been a parallel track. So you, ex- Sorry. So you suggested earlier that this was a little bit you kind of got interested in this because of your kids, um, at least partly. So did you find yourself experimenting on your kids? Because I would totally be tempted to do that. You know, like, does this concept make sense to you? You know, you're however many years old. Yeah, well, it, I think the very first few uh, projects were for elementary and middle school kids, and my kids did take part in some of those. Cool. And, and then uh, they went on and they graduated and left. And none of them is a physicist, uh-huh. but, but they're all doing <laughs> useful things, so that's fine. <laughs> but you secretly hope they were physicists, right? <laughs> oh, that's always a hard one. My husband is a physicist too, so you know oh. that's that was two strikes against. <laughs> I guess the kids didn't want that. So yeah. going going back to the app um, and in the teaching, uh, I guess not teaching experience for you necessarily. Um, is this is this app following? So, so there's two things. One, um, the app, I believe, was funded via an NSF grant, correct? Yes. Can you talk just a little bit about that? So the NSF grant funded the whole professional development project. So the professional development of the teachers, this, you know, so it was kind of a big project with lots of moving parts. And that, mm-hmm. and that was the main focus of the that proposal. That was the main focus mm-hmm. of it. 
So the uh, development of the app was sort of a, a side piece to it. Mm -hmm. uh, because as part of your project, you're also supposed to publish and disseminate whatever it is that you're uh, uh, creating. And so this was sort of our dissemination piece. Wow, yeah. that's an oh. awesome way to do that. <laughs> Most people just, you know, publish Here's a paper. A paper. <laughs> Here it is. No, we too. just have an app that thousands of students in Missouri use mm -hmm. it. You know, no big deal. Yeah. Do you hope that this app is then used Na nationwide um i i know that standard core standard um yeah would be a bit different based on each state but do you hope that this takes off farther away than missouri yes we do certainly it's it's uh, aligned to the ne next generation science standards which is uh, okay. a national the national standards and missouri's science standards in for high school physics are fairly similar they're not identical but a large part of them is very similar to NGSS. So uh, for sure, you know, we are interested in, uh, you know, having anybody use it mm -hmm. that, that's interested. Yeah. Can I say, I think the implementation of this, uh, I would think would go over really well because my mom is a kindergarten teacher mm -hmm. and she just has so many workbooks and she just hates storing them so much. And so just to be able to have the internet store it for you would be so valuable. I'm really sure. And not only that, it seems to tap into getting kids or students just more used to using computer programs. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's where technology is. There's yep. no reason for us to ignore it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, you know, the, if you ask the teachers, one of the things that they kind of struggle with is that um, they have these devices, but then what are they going to use them for? And uh, so many of them use them for so various for various different reasons. But the issue is, can you use them successfully for actually learning mm -hmm. any uh, content, and not just for let's say you know having a, a content-based game, for example, or perhaps uh, some app that you can easily use to take pictures and mm -hmm. annotate and so on so i think uh, that's an important part so, so how do we figure out uh, whether this app is being useful to, yeah, to the people to evaluation the of the app mm -hmm. yeah so that's the phase we are in right now so as we are finishing up the app so there's eight eight nine units that we plan to uh, release sort of in the first round uh and uh, so this year we, we finished pretty much finished four units completely in the and four more are in various stages of completion but in this academic year we're going to do some beta testing in in school districts mm -hmm. and we're going to uh, get some responses back from the students and from the teachers as to what they found useful what what they learned what was easier to work with what was more helpful to learning mm -hmm. and so on uh, in the next version whenever that is uh, we'd like to build some of these things into the app itself so that it can actually track uh, some of the information. But, you know, that's going to be, yeah, that, that'll be good to do. So with that, I'm not sure how uh, developed you have that idea, but would that be like having an in-app test that the students can take and you can see what percentage students got right? Well, there's a lot of uh, practice problems, for example, that are already in the app. So they're more geared towards in-class and homework problems than a test. So one could have a test or one could just use some of these homework problems. And if, for example, one could track uh, what did the student do before they got to doing this homework problem? Mm -hmm. uh, and then if they got stuck, did they abandon that and go back and do some reading or watch a movie of how to do solve a problem and then come back and do it again? So even if one can track some of those things, then it really gives you a very good sense of what's working well in the app and what's used a lot in the app. Uh, now, what happens when you do stuff like this is you end up with a huge data dump. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got to know how to handle all of that in addition to just get obtaining the data. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, at some point you'll have access to like the collegiate physics program enrollment numbers and be able to tease out any sort of differences there? Yeah, we, we would really like to do that. We did a very quick uh, survey, but that didn't tell us much. Okay. And I think what we need to do is to go to a much larger 
uh, base of undergraduates mm -hmm. and uh, figure out you know how it has uh, impacted them cool i'm still really impressed with your decision to do a professional development proposal that's not um the most uh taken route yeah. for physicists and it's just really great that you saw that this was such a lacking space yeah i think uh, like i said it happened slowly it's like you know you when you boil a frog you <laughs> don't just dump them in <laughs> are you thoroughly boiled now <laughs> some days i feel pretty boiled <laughs> um on a not entirely related note i would uh, actually wonder about how it was uh trademarking all of this and uh, doing the, the legal technicalities and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so you take a couple of college professors and, you know, NSF wants you to convert all of these things into little businesses. That's really the route that they want people to take now. And, you know, there's there's a little bit of a mismatch in thinking out there. So, <laughs> So I wonder, I wonder, I mean, it just seems so obvious, right? You're trained as a physicist. Why, why shouldn't you be able you're, to, you're, you're <laughs> to go straight into a, the legal, legal system and trademark your, your little idea? You're, you're wonderful as a physicist and an educator, so certainly you'll be a great entrepreneur, yeah. right? Yeah, they're right. The same, they're practically the same thing. And yeah. Except that the, the point, is, the thing I think that we found out is that, you know, we're all good at getting money and spending it. You know, oh, I'm great at trying to make money, money is, <laughs> is is a little bit new, but uh, so so here there's there's been there's been a lot of help along the way. So that that was a, a great thing to find out. So MU has uh, several different things that they offer now to uh, help faculty become entrepreneurs because this is not a unique problem. You know, everybody has this problem. So they've developed a group at the law school called the Entrepreneurship Legal Clinic. It's run, uh, it's uh, overseen by a faculty member, Jim Neiman. He's a lawyer and he's a faculty member here. And uh, he works with the whole group of law students. They're usually second and third year students. Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's like a practicum. And I think it's also a course that is the, that they have within the law school. And so those students meet with different clients who have various needs and they help you with whatever it is that they can help us with that's awesome and so mm -hmm. trademarking was one of the things that they did for us and they, so this they, benefits you and gives them practice at the same time right right they Which also mu also has another group called the venture mentoring service i don't know if you've heard about that but it's a group of mentors out of the incubator and they meet with you and you know try to they teach you, you how to be an entrepreneur right yeah yeah <laughs> NSF had a small grant called the i grant, mm -hmm. which is a $50,000 $50, grant where, again, you go through a boot camp. And it, was, <laughs> it was exhausting. <laughs> it was truly a boot camp, but it was very worthwhile. Cool. So, again, sort of getting your feet mm -hmm. wet on the entrepreneurship yeah. front. But going back to the entrepreneurship legal clinic, it's always good to, since we are in a university setting, to not only you know, have your idea out there being trademark in this case, but also mm -hmm. getting the experience to, to the students, in this case, the law students. Well, I absolutely love that that's what this whole project's doing, is just helping students. So mm -hmm. the app is helping students in in uh, under college, before college, and then... High school level? High school level, <laughs> thank you. Well, but it, it goes younger than that, correct? It, it's ninth grade. Oh, okay, so yeah. high school. Um, and then also helping the law school students currently. And I'm, I'm sure you have graduate students that are working on yes. it too. So it always helps me to go back to the basics. Yes. So yeah. It, it says grad students from physics who have helped us at the summer academies and they've loved it. And then we've got grad students in education who've done PhDs on various aspects. So yeah, there's a very large student component at various levels. Yeah. It's like an education inception, just <laughs> layer upon layer upon layer. Of Yes, uh, that's true. learning from this. That's true. Yeah. I have a question. What, so what's your favorite, like, physics topic to be teaching about? Is it forces or electricity or any of those things? Light? Yeah, I like electricity and I like light. Uh -huh. Light is sort of my, you know, area of research. So optics is always fun to teach. Uh -huh. I like how visual it is. I'm, I happen to be a rather visual person to begin with. Uh -huh. So... 
that's always great. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you again. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll go on our first musical break. Again, do you want to tell us the name of the app? Just in case anyone feels like downloading. Yeah, it's called the Exploring Physics app. Okay. Great. Exploring Physics, uh, Dr. Mira, Mira. Chandra Sekhar. Chandra Sekhar. Oh, my um, um, and, and if, if there are any teachers or students that are listening to the show and they have any questions, can they reach out to you? Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here on the show. Uh, and to our listeners, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron. Welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Real quick, I have a shout out to uh, some of our listeners. First of all, Adam's mom. Oh, okay. A very loyal listener of ours, and we love having her. Hi, mom. Also, uh, Sam and Adam Vauclair listening to us from here in Colombia. <laughs> and Alejita's parents, too? They're not listening. <gasps> They're actually on a flight. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listening. <laughs> hmm. They'll listen to the podcast, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah, to all the parents that, well, to our parents <laughs> that listen <laughs> <Yeah>. to us. <laughs> to Thank you parents. very much. Anyone's parents listening to us, we're we're pleased you're listening, regardless of whose parents you are. That is correct. I do know some other parents that listen to the show, so thanks for listening. We're we're even pleased if you're listening and you're not anyone's parents, and that's okay, too. Um, So we have uh, a little bit of time left, so we're going to fill it with talking about Hungarian literature, of course. Okay, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. Well, before that... we don't, we don't have the time for the Hungarian literature, no? Oh, okay. Unfortunately well, not. You know, well, maybe next week. Maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> or maybe, you know, on a show that actually <laughs> does that. <laughs> is there such a show? There, there, there has to there be. Is. Like a Hungarian. There has to be. for sure. <laughs> I don't know about here. Um, okay, well, we're getting off topic. I, I apologize. Uh, okay, Jackie, so, so we, yeah. were, we were talking about physics, and we're going to attempt to talk about physics because we're not physicists, but we like physics or something like that. <laughs> we love physics. We love physics. I mean, honestly, we have to. I mean, physics is like rules the world, right? It's like physics and then chemistry and then biology kind of explains everything else. Yeah, I kind of think like if you if you start with biology, it's like the study of things that are living. And then if you kind of zoom in, there are like specific cells and atoms. And that's where you start to get biochemistry to chemistry. Mm-hmm. And then if you like zoom in even further and it's just particles, that's when you start thinking about physics. Or you can zoom way out and look at space. And that's <laughs> physics also. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking of like, we start with physics, which is just like particles, atoms, mm-hmm. and then... Well, I guess particles, and then you zoom in a little bit, chemistry, mm-hmm. atoms, molecules, zoom in more, and it's like cells, biology, and then bleh, everything else. And then there's <laughs> social sciences, which is how biology which, behaves. Right, right. It's like biology studies animals, which we are, and then go into our behavior. I don't know. We should stop talking and go to like <laughs> science. Okay, so something that... You generally hear, uh, or at least I always heard when I was growing up and taking my science classes or whatever, that we can't really see atoms, right? We can't really see molecules even. Too small. They're too small. They're, they're like way too small to be seen. But thanks to technology, <sighs> this can be changed. Um, so... Researchers at MIT, shockingly, uh, were actually able to see individual atoms um, for the first time. That's uh, insane. And this was published on Friday. So this is like breaking news, but not really. <laughs> um, so if you, if you want to see, if you were to want to see atoms, uh, the atoms are moving at lightning speeds. Literally, they're moving really, really fast that you can't really pin down, um, especially at room temperature, where they're at. And Even only, if you use the most powerful microscopes, you will only see a shadowy blur of something. Because they're moving so fast and they're so small. So mm-hmm. an atom ranges somewhere between 0.1 and 0.5 nanometers. So that's one times 10 to the negative 10th meter. To five times ten to the negative ten. That's really small. <laughs> that's that's really tiny. Very 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 tiny. Um, 
But this group, uh, it's physicists at MIT. And what they did is they cooled down a gas of potassium atoms. So this is just potassium. It's not a molecule. It's just potassium. Mm-hmm. To nanokelvins. So wow. zero kelvins, it's absolute zero. And nothing uh, has ever been absolute zero. Nothing has been ever absolute zero. Um, just to give you an idea, uh, if since we're talking about kelvins, um, room temperature is 273 Degrees Kelvin. 295. 295. Sorry, I was thinking zero. Yeah, you were thinking zero. 295 <laughs> Kelvin. So the And they cooled down all the way to nano Kelvins. So they had like point zero 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 X. So, so just to clarify, this is substantially cooler than your freezer at home. We're talking about like almost 300 degrees colder than like water freezes. Celsius. In Celsius, yeah. not in Fahrenheit. So that's yeah. like 500 something degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. below yeah. zero. That's what we're. That's cold. That's very that's cold. Very right. cold. So, so they 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 cooled it down to almost absolute zero, which would allow them, as you can imagine, as things start to cool down, right? What happens? Atoms stop. They stop moving. moving they or get, they, they slow, slow down. down. They, they slow down enough. <laughs> they slow down enough. Uh, for them to be able to to see them. So what they did is they had uh, they trapped the atoms, um, and then they were able to use a high resolution microscope and take image of the cool atoms. So uh, what they did is they took uh, pictures of atoms, uh, hundreds of pictures, and what they observed is that the atoms were interacting in they call it a rather peculiar ways. Hmm. Uh, so some atoms exhibit uh, antisocial behavior. Yeah, and they I, kept- I have always said that. <laughs> I always say everything in chemistry is super antisocial. And they just kept away from each other. They were just like, nope, leave me alone. <laughs> well, some others actually bunched together um, mm. with alternating magnetic orientations, which mm. is something that we're always thought in chemistry. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so if something's going up, if you want to pair it, this thing has to go down. When it comes to the magnetic, it's uh, like thinking about two ma- bars of magnets. They're not going to want to click together unless they're they're negative. They're, they're opposite. opposite. Yeah. Um, others appeared. Other molecules. Other atoms appeared to piggyback on each other. So mm. they created uh, pairs of atoms that were next to empty spaces or that created holes. Fun. Yeah. Um, hmm. So they. The reason why they started studying this was for. Uh, to study superconducting behavior. Um, so they want to see how, because superconductors are materials that electrons can pair up and travel without any friction, uh, meaning that there's no energy that is lost. Um, so if superconductors can be designed um, to exist at room temperature, um, this could be a, an entire new era for anything that, that, is, crazy. that needs electricity. Because it wouldn't be any friction. It wouldn't be any loss yeah. of, um, of anything. Um, as if, if you've ever, you know, connected your charger and you're charging your phone, if you touch it, it's going to be hot. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, mm-hmm. you're losing energy. In this case, you're losing thermal energy. Um, so they're looking at this uh, to see if at room temperature they could do something, something like that. So, so, so if I understand right, right now, superconducting materials, we can only produce that at very low temperatures like the kind you're describing mm-hmm. here. Correct. So the idea is to understand this better and see if we can uh, figure out how to use it at room temperature, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're not going to try to decrease the temperature of our phones <laughs> to, to zero Kelvin or anything like that. This would be trying to understand the whole concept a little bit better right. so we could apply it. So right, so you you would think like, well, why haven't we studied this? Um, it's actually kind of impossible to model the behavior uh, of they call it high temperature superconductors um, because it uh, interactions between electrons are just very very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it was necessary to stop cool things it down, from moving. stop things from moving, see how they behave, and then hopefully create some rationale between uh, between that and then make it make it work um, at That's nuts. room temperature. But is it going to interact the same way at room temperature? I mean, like... Probably not. Temperature just changes, you're gonna have, you know, 
Right, because you're going to have, now you haven't slowed down the interaction. Yeah. The interactions will still happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least they can see, okay, there's but you're, three, four can. types of interactions. So then you can start thinking, okay, well, I need to model this with the three, yeah. four types of interactions. At least it's not randomized right now. Yeah. Now, no. you know. We can figure out the rules they're playing theaters. by, right. essentially. Mm-hmm. So Very cool. Yeah, so you know something something that was that was uh, that just came up out of MIT. Um, that research was supported by the NSF, the Air Force, Army Research, um, and a foundation. So hopefully, there's some good news uh, that happened out of out of this uh, published research. It's about time MIT did something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. They've, right, right. They've, they've been coasting for all these years. Uh, but yeah, what else do you have for us, Adam, in, in the realm of physics? Well, let's let's move from talking about antisocial atoms to having an antisocial atom talk about space. <laughs> um, antisocial atom. I, I, um, I thought you're not supposed my... to like say it again. You're just supposed to catch the joke and then laugh I, at it. I always ruin my own jokes by repeating them. I will so, okay, wear them out. Let's, let's, um, let's try this again. Adam, so this is the realm um, that I was talking about. Adam, what else do you have in the realm of physics? Let's talk about space. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, let's talk about a uh, satellite called Gaia, which is a big spacecraft device produced by the European Space Agency, or ESA. And it was launched in 2000, uh, my apologies, 2013, I believe yeah december 2013 uh to look at the sky which is sort of what these things are for it's mm-hmm. a giant telescope um it turns out uh it's seeing a lot of things that we didn't know were there and that's kind of a good thing too because uh wouldn't be very interesting if we just kept looking at the same stuff it really is looking at the same areas of space as we always have but it's finding uh more that's there because it's got better ability to collect data and it's turned out it's found a couple of hundred million stars whoa um, oh my gosh is so it's we've where though in the milky way galaxy oh. right here huh. that's uh, what's so cool about it it's basically been looking let's look a little bit closer at the galaxy that we're actually in <laughs> um there have been all sorts of uh, maps made in recent decades of uh, galaxies that are huge distances away uh, and of course, we know more and more about the galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way, all the time. Uh, but it's there's a lot that's right here in our galactic neighborhood that's really hard to see. Like if we look in the sky, we can't even tell just looking that our galaxy has this spiral shape and that we're in one of its arms some great distance from the center. Like we had to extrapolate that wow. from seeing individual stars. So, and we knew that, but it's really hard to see all of the stuff in between. And it's, um, so the best way to resolve that is to look closer and look in more detail. And that turns out, uh, that requires something like Gaia. So this spacecraft has been sending back 40 gigabytes of data per day, uh, for 14 months during its first 14 months. Uh, returning a total of 490 billion astrometric astrometric measurements, um, along with, and I'm quoting here, uh, 118 billion photometric measurements and 10 billion spectroscopic measurements. Wow. So Talk that's about big data. For, 40 gigs a day. Uh-huh. And somebody at the European <laughs> Space Agency said, okay, we can sort through all this and figure something out. And they did. Wow. And they sorted through that, and they have made uh, the first steps towards producing a map of the Milky Way galaxy, a 3D map. That's cool. Now, it wouldn't be complete. It would be heavily biased towards stuff that's closer to us rather than all the way on the other side of the galaxy, for example. But we're well on our way to producing a 3D map of the space around us, which would be a first at least. Definitely a first at this level of detail. So there's all these new stars, like, identified, right? Well, it can tell they're there. Okay. We haven't, like, looked at them individually okay. to identify and give names to all of these things other than probably a few ones and zeros. Yeah. Yeah. 
but you could, yeah. But so someday we'll have more stars that we can, you know, buy the name for yeah. for twenty dollars and surprise your sweetheart <laughs> by naming a star after them. We have that many more options. We have a lot of options uh, for for finding those stars to name after ourselves or to <laughs> sell always, the naming rights to. I always wonder about NASA's naming system. Mm-hmm. So like Gaia is in Greek mythology the personification of Earth. Okay. And so like they sent Mother Earth out to space. Actually, NASA NASA did not. The European Space Agency did. So you'd have to ask the Europeans why they chose that. Well, I don't know. Well, speaking NASA always has funny little like puns and stuff like that with their naming. Speaking speaking of of naming of stars, um, here's a here's a fun fact. Do you guys know Queen the band? Of course. Yes. So the the guitar player Brian May. he was studying his PhD in physics and astronomy when he met Freddie Mercury. And he had to pause because they got famous. And and pre- pretty much it was yeah. a decision of like, do you want to continue doing physics or do you want to go to join the band Queen? Well, so he I continued. I think he made a so point. He made, he made the wrong choice, <laughs> but. but yeah. But he returned, actually, after they, you know, eventually... Awesome. Um, you know, settle, whatever. He actually went back, finished his PhD. He actually has a star named after himself. Awesome. Because he, because he discovered one and then it was, that he named really it. Cool. It's not called That's Brian May. It's like another random name, but. Did um, you hear about the Freddie Mercury um, asteroid? So in honor of Freddie Mercury's 70th birthday, they named an asteroid after him. Just Freddie Mercury. That's super cool. Which brings to mind for me a lot of Don't Stop Me Now lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> He's a satellite. Yeah. He's out of control. I Freddie mean, Mercury lives on. That's, that's great, but he already has a planet named after him. I'm not entirely sure this is... Really uh, necessary. Necessary, but... Um, oh, I think well, it is. It seems like he's hogging, you know, <laughs> solar system <laughs> interstellar bodies is all in. I mean, they're the queen, Right. Queen of the universe. <laughs> well, and it's good to know that if the, uh, you know, if this radio show thing takes off and we get really famous, we can always come back and finish degrees. So keep that in mind. Well, well says the person who already yeah. defended. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> I, I have just been advised by Dr. Google that uh, Freddie Mercury was not his real name. So uh, anyway. There you go. Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> so, wait, I want to see the science. What's the name of, the, name of the asteroid, though? Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury. So it's the a fake name. The asteroid is named Freddie Mercury? Yes. They named him, I believe it was just over a week ago, was his seventh, would have been his 70th so, birthday. So he took his name from a planet, which then, and then gave that planet's name to another He's that good that they thought, not only does there need to be a Mercury, but there needs to be a Freddie Mercury. Well, Freddie. Yeah, okay. So They're all just trading names. <laughs> I think we should rename Mercury. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this this hopefully gives shed some more light on, on new starts. Uh, new stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madeline, what do you have for us? Um, so... I was reading this neat little article, so I'm obviously not a physicist, but it was talking about how tricky it is. So, so there's this um, this field that would really like to uh, use light to encode information, but obviously light travels super, super, super fast. Mm-hmm. And um, so the way that these um, people have have found to solve that problem was to turn light into sound, which is slow enough that we can then use computers to um, decode the data that was previously encoded. And that is about the extent of my knowledge on the subject now. It was just a super cool topic. So this is transferring light to sound and then back to some data, some sort of electronic data? So it's like data encoded in light being read by a computer chip, right? Yes. But Except it has to go light is the, too fast, yep. so we slow it down by making it sound. Yeah, it yep. is literally the fastest thing that can exist yeah. in the universe. So, which is right. tricky to work. With. Except for Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Except for Freddie Mercury. Um, Not the asteroid. <laughs> but okay, but so sound uh, is quite slow on a relatively physics rel- kind com- of sense. Comparing yeah. it to right, comparing it to to light speed, it's it's much. Yeah. That's why when you go to see like fireworks, you can see 
the firework first before yeah. you actually hear the, the boom sounds way yeah. later or with um, lightning right exactly um so well, yeah hopefully that's, it'll that's be pretty useful neat. i mean that it, that is pretty neat um speaking of of data conversion something that that is now trying um to to be picked up and only a couple of of groups uh have published on this is utilizing dna mm-hmm. as our data storage um because the storing all this data that we're producing uh, on a daily basis. It's its really expensive, it's really hard to keep track of, and um, it's, it's, it's very expensive too, and it's only gonna last about 500 years. So if hmm. we wanna keep going, we need to find ways of making this more efficient. And with DNA, I mean, mm-hmm. we have found fossils that are <laughs> many years <laughs> old. <laughs> well, as a, as a biologist of a sort uh i can confirm that dna is wet (laughs) so it would have some some technical hurdles to overcome Mm -hmm. but i bet they're working there i think both of these like stories pinpoint like the problem we're trying to solve is that it's we are getting to be in a place where the amount the way that we store data is just not sufficient Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. we have to find better ways to store greater amounts of data Mm -hmm. In an efficient in an way, efficient and way. not so expensive because it's really expensive at this point. Uh, that's also why quantum computing uh, right. needs to take place and, and all these other crazy, not so crazy ideas now. Uh, mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, it's using physics and using biology to mm-hmm. solve these computing problems. We right. don't Because that is how we are functioning now. It's yeah. all via if computing we, problems. They always solve problems for us, so I think it's time we give back. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so hope you liked our show. Um, again, if you're listening to us on our podcast, please rate us. It's please. really helpful. If you want to listen to, if you, there's a topic that you're very interested in, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or email us. Again, our email is thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. And we'd be more than happy to either find someone who is knowledgeable on this subject or we will do the research for you and get this um on air so thanks for listening 